Show of hands. How many of you have seen Seinfeld? Pretty much everybody. So um, I never thought anybody could make uh, Elaine look like a good dancer, but I saw the video of Seth. <laughs> and what he is doing is not dancing. I'll just say that, right? I'm pretty sure that that'll probably make its way to our Facebook page. So we, uh, we struggled to get people to sign up for that to get our information, and we thought, Wes and I talked this morning, you know what, we might be able to get people to subscribe to our stuff if we promise them something, uh, something like that. So uh, just uh, subscribe, and, uh, and you're in for a treat. You're in for a real treat. <laughs> uh, sorry, not sorry, Seth. Um, all right, all right. So just to start us off this morning, I read in a bunch of commentaries this week that the passage we're about to wade through is considered by all the old dead guys that write on Scripture that this is the most difficult passage in Galatians. It's the most difficult passage in Galatians. If you're thinking, man, the last couple messages have been kind of tough, you know, making my head spin a little bit. Well, put on your waders, because we're about to wade into it this morning. There's really two reasons why this passage is so difficult. The first reason is that Paul assumes that we know our Old Testament. And not just like know kind of some about it, like really know it. And now, I've said before that if you want to hear from God on a regular basis, then you need to spend some time in his word. And I hope that you're doing that. But I'm also not so naive as to think that if you're making time for God's word, that you're reading a whole lot of the Old Testament. Because to be frank, the Old Testament is difficult. It's rich. If you spend time and, and actually will we'll get into it, the better you understand the Old Testament the better you'll be able to understand the New Testament. It's all about Jesus, but the Old Testament is a little bit harder to make some of those connections sometimes. So Paul is assuming that, that we know our stories and, and, and that we've spent time in the Old Testament. So that's the first difficulty. I'm going to have to bring us up to speed, and I'm going to mention some names like Abraham and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac, which you've probably heard of but maybe aren't that familiar with. And then also he talks about Mount Sinai and Jerusalem. Again, you could probably tell me something about Jerusalem, but my guess is if I ask you, hey, what was the covenant that was given at Mount Sinai? You'd have to Google it real quick, which is okay, but that's just what we're up against this morning. There's a lot of, of back knowledge that we need to understand. And then the other part that makes this passage difficult is that he takes all of this Old Testament knowledge, history that happened, and he allegorizes it. He turns it into a metaphor. An allegory is simply like a, an extended metaphor where they use people or situations as symbolism to talk about something other than what actually happened, as a representation of something that, other, that happened earlier. So what happened means something else. It's symb symbolic metaphor. So there's, there's a whole lot going on here this morning. So we've got to understand the Old Testament, and then we've got to understand the Old Testament enough to know how it represents a symbol of some deep spiritual truth. So like I said, there's a, a lot going on. We've got our work cut out for us. So with that in mind, let's jump right into it. We're going to read Galatians 4, 21 through 31. But before we do that, I want to tell you the story of Abraham and Sarah. Now, if you want to read about this for yourself, and you should, to make sure I'm not making anything up, I'm not, but it's in there, write it down. It, our story this morning starts in Genesis 11. We're going to cover about 10 chapters of Genesis this morning. Genesis 11 through about Genesis 
21. So write that down. You can double check and make sure that your pastor's not lying to you, that I'm telling you what actually happened in the Old Testament. So in Genesis 11, we are introduced to a man named Abram. He's not Abraham yet. That happens later in the story. He goes by Abram. We can call him Abe, we can call him Abram, Abraham, all the same guy, just some name changes going on throughout the story. So we're introduced in Genesis 11 to a man named Abram, and we're told where he lives. He lives in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. This is like northeast by several hundred thousand miles of Israel. So if you can picture Israel, he's like, Israel's right here. He's living up here in like the Mesopotamia area, the Ur of the Chaldeans. He's married to his wife. Her name is Sarai. And we're also told that Sarai is unable to have children. She is barren. This is a very important detail, and it's why the author of Genesis uh, puts it in Abram's introduction. We're only given three, ta- three, um, three details about Abram. We're told where he lives. He lives in Ur. He's married, and his wife is barren. His wife is barren. See, a good storyteller puts those little details right at the beginning to kind of foreshadow what's to come. So then, after that, we're told that Abram's father, father, he dies. He dies. And at this point, we're in chapter 12 now of Genesis. We begin to learn about the call of God on Abram's life. God speaks to Abram somehow. We're not told how he speaks. I've always wondered that. God, how did you do this? Because, listen, it has to be pretty clear for Abram to make the decision that he makes. We're told that God speaks to Abram. I don't know if he whispered to his heart, just still small voice. I don't know if he showed up in a dream or a vision. Did he speak audibly? You know, the big booming voice, Abram, it's God. I don't know. We're not told. We're not told, but we are told that Abram heard God, and he heard God tell him to leave his home country, to leave his family all behind, and to go to a place where God would show him. Just think about that for a second. Abram heard from the God of heaven, who said, hey, pack up all your stuff and start traveling to a place that I will show you. Imagine yourself in Abram's shoes for a minute. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine trying to explain that to your family. You're packing up the U-Haul. One of your uncles drops by. Hey, buddy, what are you doing? Oh, we're moving. Really? Where are you going to? We don't know yet. What? You don't know yet? You're not sure where you're going? Nope. And actually, I heard a voice from heaven tell me, pack up all my stuff and just start going. He'll tell me where we're going to go when we get there. Wait, what? You're moving because you heard a voice from heaven and you don't know where you're going? I'm calling the fifth floor, right? Abram says, no, yeah, that's what we're doing. God told me to pack up everything, to set out, and he'll show us where we're going to go. And listen, I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy, but he also told me that he's going to make me and my family into a great nation. He said he's going to make me famous. He's going to make it so my family will be a blessing to all other families throughout the earth. And before you go cursing me, he also told me this. He said that he will bless those who bless me and the God of heaven will curse those who curse me. So, which one are you going to be? You guys going to curse me? Or are you going to bless me? And we're not told what his relatives did or said, but we are told that Abram followed God's instruction. I imagine it was a mixed bag. He probably had some that were supportive. He probably had others that wanted to commit him to a mental institution. 
Regardless, he packs up, he sets out, and we're told that he sets out when he is 75 years old. 75! Jay and Casey just left everything that they've known. Jay and Casey Ashball. You don't know them. They've been here. They grew up in Napoleon. I think they're in their mid-40s. They just packed up everything they know. They moved to Tennessee. It was a huge adjustment for them. They're doing well. But imagine being 75 and leaving everything you've ever known behind. He does. Abram does just that because he feels called by God to do so. Him and his family, they travel to what will one day become modern-day Israel. It's called Canaan at this time. And it's here that God reaffirms his promise to Abraham. God says again, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you into a great people. But it wasn't all roses and unicorns. We're told in uh, Genesis, the end of 12, I think, we're told that there was a famine in this land. And so Abram had to once again pack up his family, all of his belongings, and they moved to Egypt for a time. And it's here that we discover that Sarai is a bombshell of a woman. Okay, later we're told she's about 10 years younger. So she's 65, but as they're entering into Egypt, Abraham's like, listen, you're smoking hot, which, good for you, Abraham, right? 65-year-old wife, and she's still smoking hot. Good for you, dude, right? So they, they get in there, and he's like, listen, you are beautiful, and if the Egyptians know that you're my wife, they will kill me and take you. Tell everybody you're your sister. Tell everybody you're your sister. So when they get to Egypt, Everyone sees how beautiful Sarai is. Everyone sees it. Man, she's beautiful. They tell Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, I need that woman. And Abraham, Abraham just lets him take his wife into his harem. Folks, do you know what a harem is? Do you know what a harem is? These aren't slave girls that you keep around to cook and clean, right? They are there for only one reason, to serve at the pleasure of the king, if you know what I mean. Now, remember, God has promised to make Abram into a great nation. That only happens through descendants, right? But we've already been told that Sarai is barren. We don't know if it's Abraham's problem, if it's his deal with the conception stuff, or if it's her deal. We don't know but we know that they can't conceive. And so at the end of Genesis 12, we come to the first test of God's promise. Will God let Pharaoh be the one to kick off Abraham's descendants? Kind of seems like a little shady way to do it, doesn't it? A little bit too man-made, a little bit not enough miracle for God, right? You'd be right if you were thinking that. If you know anything about God, he's not really into man-made. He's more into the miraculous. Miracle is more his style. And so rather than allow Sarai to be molested by this playboy king, God sends plagues on Egypt. He sends plagues on Egypt because of Sarai. Sound familiar? It's not the first time he's going to do this, or not the last time he's going to do this. And we're not told how Pharaoh finds out that all the plagues are, are in his kingdom because of Sarai and what he's doing. But he finds out. He finds out. But the Lord God, the Lord Most High, is sending these plagues because of his relationship to Abram and Sarah. And he's, he says, hey, why, I don't know why you lied to me, but get out of here. Take all your stuff and go. I'm done with you guys. Take your wife and go. Now, at this point, don't you think that maybe God starts to reconsider his choice? You know, picking Abraham? I mean, this guy just gave up his wife to a playboy king 
He was going to allow his wife to be used as the king's sex toy. I know that's graphic, but that's, that's what's going to happen. That is what is going to happen. Do you think at that moment God's like, man, I ugh, wish I would have chose someone else, this guy. What's wrong with him? But God doesn't do that. Because our God is a God of grace, not a God of law. God does not abandon Abram or renege on his promise. God gives Abram grace. And throughout Genesis 13 and 14, we're told that God continues to bless and prosper Abram. He reaffirms his promise over and over and over again. And yet, another 10 years go by, and still Abram doesn't have any sons. By this time, Abram has become very wealthy. We find out that he's got a lot of livestock. He's got lots of people under his rule. He has 318 trained fighting men, a small army. In that section of scripture, you can read about it. He actually takes on five kings in the area and puts it to him. He wins. Abram's kind of a boss. He's doing well for himself. And he's about in his 80s, somewhere in his 80s. But he still has no son. And at the beginning of Genesis 15, he starts to question God about this. How many of you have ever clung or clung, held on to a promise of God? You've had to wait for it for years. Abraham's been waiting for years for a son, still no son. He begins to think that maybe God is slow on keeping his promises. Lord, you've blessed me with all this wealth. But what good is it if I don't have any son to pass it on to? All I have is the slave. You've not given me any son to pass all my stuff to. How's my family going to become a great nation if I don't have an heir? Folks, God hears Abram's concern and he responds. He says, Abraham, I will give you a son. Trust me. Go look outside. Come with me outside. Look up. Look at the stars. That is how many your your family is going to be. Can you count them? No, you can't. I'm going to make good on my promise. And at the end of Genesis 15, there's this weird little thing that happens. The Lord God and Abraham perform a covenant ceremony. But it's different from most other covenant ceremonies. Normally, when two men would enter into a covenant, they would come to the agreement of what the covenant was going to be, and then they would chop up an animal. And they would put two halves of this animal on either side of a path, and they would walk through it together. It's to signify, if either one of us drops our end of the covenant, may we become like these slaughtered animals. But that's not what God does in this covenant in Genesis 15. We're told that he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. Abraham gets the animals, some doves, some pigeons, a couple, I don't know, cows, chops them up, splits them in half, and then it says the Lord God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And the only person to walk that path was God signifying that if, if I don't keep up my end of the deal, God's end of the deal, may I become like these animals, slaughtered. And Abraham, if you don't keep up your end of the deal, I'm going to take that punish upon myself as well. May I become like these slaughtered animals. For those of you that attend here regularly, you know that that is exactly what Christ did for us, because we could not keep up our end of the covenant. 
And God said that I will take that punishment for you. I will make a way for us to uphold the covenant. I will become like these animals on your behalf. The Lord God reaffirms his promise to Abraham. Genesis 15. But more time passes. We're not told how much time. It's between a year, maybe five years, most likely. And Sarai is still barren. No son. And then we come to Genesis 16. And things get dicey. You're like, I thought things were dicey already. It gets worse. Hold on. Sarai comes up with a plan to help God. Folks, God doesn't need your help. And most times, if you try to help him, if you try to move God's plan forward, if you try and just hurry up his timetable a little bit, maybe get it on your timetable, everything gets worse, and lots of times people get hurt. Sarai becomes impatient to receive God's promise. She comes up with a very worldly solution, a very human, man-made solution to their problem. This was a common practice during this day. If your wife couldn't conceive, well, then you just take a slave girl as your wife and use her. This is precisely what Sarai proposes. Abram, I'm over 65 now. I know what God said, but maybe this is what he meant. Maybe this is how he's going to accomplish it. She rationalizes sin. Well, maybe God's kind of slow. Maybe if we just help him out, let's just take this shortcut here and and force his hand here a little bit. Here, take my young, beautiful slave slave girl, Hagar. Man, she's young. She's beautiful. She's a virgin. Take her. Bear a son through her. And what did old honest Abe say? No way. I know how that story ends, right? No way. No way. Haven't you read Genesis 2.24? The Lord God said, the two become one flesh. Two. Not three. Just two. I don't want any part of that. Get away. Get away here. Get away from me with that idea. No, I'm not going to do that. Sadly, that's not what Abraham said. Nope. This 86-year-old man, his wife, his beautiful wife comes to him and offers him another beautiful young woman for him to share his bed with. And old honest Abe says, baby, I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. He sleeps with Hagar. Hagar becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) Eh. Right? No. They didn't live happily ever after. Instantly, Sarai becomes insanely jealous and bitter, and she starts harassing Hagar and Ishmael and her husband, Abram. Abram's like, babe, I just, I did exactly what you told me to do. For those of you with spouses in here, whoever done, who have ever done exactly what your spouse has asked you to do and then have them upset with you, be encouraged. You have a biblical marriage, right? You do. We see it right here. Seriously, though, who's surprised by this? I'm not. Two wives is one too many wives. So Ishmael is born to Abram when he's 86 years old. And this unleashes a whole lot of strife into his family. Hagar runs away at one point. God has to send an angel to bring her back. It's a mess. And then God shows up four years later when Abraham is 90 years old and he again reaffirms his promise. 
Abram, I'm going to give you a place, a land, and I'm going to make you into a people. And through your people, all nations of the world are going to be blessed. And Abraham's like, yeah, great. You already gave me a son. Thanks for him. Bless him. And God's like, dude, that was not my doing. That was not my doing. That was not part of the plan. I will take care of Ishmael and the mess that you made. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover you all with grace, but that is not the son who I'm going to extend my blessing through. That is not the child of the promise. Folks, at this point, Abram, again, he's 90. We're told Sarah is 10 years behind him. She's 80. And God says, I'm going to give you a child. Ladies in here, ladies over 40, can you imagine what it would be like to have a child today? Right? Imagine having a child at 80. <laughs> you shopping at Walmart for their diapers? And your diapers, right? <laughs> that ain't natural. That ain't natural. It's just not. And that is precisely God's point. God doesn't do natural. Our God does supernatural. He makes a way when there ain't no way. But God does it on his timetable, not ours. Abraham and Sarah have to wait another 10 years, a decade, another decade. Again, those of you who are praying for something and are waiting, you're not the only one who's had to wait on the Lord. But eventually God made good on his promise. In Genesis 21, we're told that Abraham and Sarah conceive at 190. They conceive and give birth to a son, and they name him Isaac. When Isaac is born, Ishmael, the son of the slave girl, Hagar, he would have been 14 years old at this time. 14. And you can imagine how the birth of a new son went over in their family. Not so well. Ishmael was in line to inherit everything that was Abraham's. But now with Isaac on the scene, Sarah would not stand for a slave to inherit a thing. And so Sarah had Hagar and Ishmael outcasts from their family, driven out. Abraham was upset by this because Ishmael was his son after all. But God told him, he said, let him go. Cast them out. I'll protect them. I will protect them, I will go with them, but they will not receive the inheritance or the promise. That's coming through Isaac. Folks, the Arab people grew out of Ishmael, the Muslims. The Jewish nation grew out of Isaac. There is a conflict to this day between these nations because of a sin that happened 4,000 years ago. Our choices we make today have consequences. Isaac, son of a slave girl. Or Ishmael, son of a slave girl. Isaac, son of the freeborn woman. That's what happened. Now you're ready to hear how Paul uses this history to teach us some spiritual lessons about slavery and freedom. Let's read it together. Galatians 4. 24 through 31. I'll be reading out of NLT. Paul says this. He says, Tell me, you who want to live under the law, 
Do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt, man-made attempt, to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn woman was born as God's own fulfillment of that promise. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia, because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, she represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman, and she is our mother. As Isaiah said, Rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman, the outcast, now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want to keep the law, just as Ishmael. The child born by human effort persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son. For the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. All right, so Paul starts out here and he says to those who want to live under the law, in verse 21, he says, those living under the law, these are the folks that aren't just like trying to be moral people, they're trying to be obedient so that they have a right standing before the Father. They're trying to use their rule following, their human effort to make them right before God. In the allegory, this can be seen when Abraham, in the name of salvation or helping God, he relies on his own strength and problem-solving abilities to make good on God's promise. In human effort, I want to help God make his promise come true. I want to have right standing. I'm going to help God. I'm going to follow these rules. Rather than him trusting God's promise and resting in God's promise and patiently waiting for God to make good on it himself. God said he'd give me a son. Abraham says, well, it's been 14 years. Maybe God's slow in keeping his promise. Perhaps he won't save me. Maybe I can save myself. Maybe I'll help him. Honey, bring me the slave girl, right? Horrible idea. Folks, this is the foolishness of living your life under the law. It doesn't mean the law is bad or that Christians shouldn't obey the law. We're called to be moral, to be christ like, right? We shouldn't be breaking the Ten Commandments. We should be living according to them. The problem is we cannot do that by our own human effort. The best we can do to save ourselves is like old honest Abe here. God promised me something. Sure, it's taken a long time. I know. I'll help him. Sarah, bring me that beautiful slave girl. I just love what Paul does here in this text. He gets kind of snarky with the false teachers. 
These false teachers are all like, listen, we're descendants of Abraham, right? We took the Ancestry.com DNA test. Look, you can trace that line right down. Our, our father Abraham, he's our great, 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 great grandpa, and we're awesome, and we follow the rules, and we have all these traditions, and if you want to be awesome like us, if you really want to be a child of Abraham, well, then you follow all of our rules. Don't do this, do that. Do this tradition, go to church on these days, do this, do that. Then you will truly be a child of Abraham. You will have that prestige of standing in right relationship with God, of being chosen. And Paul comes along and tells these guys, he says, you think you're children of Abraham? You think he's your granddad? He might be, but let's talk about your mother for a second. You all think you come from the good line. You don't. You come from the line of Hagar, the slave girl. Do you know how she got treated? They did. You remember her? Of course they remembered her. Do you know what Ishmael received? Nothing. No inheritance. He got nothing. He got outcast. He continued in slavery. And Paul says, that is what you all are if you are going to try and follow the law Help God by your human effort. Your, your mother is Hagar. You are a slave. You've got nothing coming to you by way of an internal inheritance. Your pedigree is nothing but flesh and bone. All your human effort, the only thing that it can produce for you is slavery and bondage. But you want to talk about inheritance. Let me tell you about Isaac, Paul says. Isaac, well, he was not produced by human effort, by natural means, by man-made means. No, Isaac was produced by the promise of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, Isaac is the heir of God who walked in freedom and got an inheritance. It's like this, folks. Paul sets before us two opposing paths. The path of Isaac the path of Ishmael, the way of the flesh, the way of the spirit. I just want to simply work through those two different ways to close out our morning together. The way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. The way of the slave, the way of the free. The way of law and human effort, the way of grace and freedom. The way of flesh is what comes natural. The way of flesh says if it feels good, do it. Abraham and Sarah couldn't conceive, so what's the natural solution? Well, find a surrogate. Follow the values of the world. Friends, the gospel reverses the values of the world and puts their values on its head. The way of the Spirit is supernatural. The way of the flesh is what comes natural. The way of the Spirit is supernatural. Abraham and Sarah could not conceive naturally. They were 90 and 80 when God re-upped his promise. They were 190 when he made good on it. Folks, that ain't natural. That's supernatural. And it's the way of the Spirit. The way of the flesh seeks to help God and forced his hand and his timing to fit ours. Again, Abraham and Sarah, they could not work out a way that they could ever get pregnant naturally. They may have trusted God for a time, but 
Man, the years, the decades went went by. They got to be impatient. Perhaps the Lord was slow in keeping his promise. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he needs our help. Maybe with a little bit of human effort, we can move this stuff along. I know, Sarah. Bring me that beautiful slave girl. They rationalized a sinful move to force God's hand, to try and help him make good on his promise. This is what the flesh does, folks. The flesh seeks to help God out by our own human effort. The way of the flesh is impatient and or ignorant of God's promises. The way of the Spirit, the way of the Spirit is sustained for or sustained by God's promises. The way of the Spirit patiently waits upon and rests in God's promises. The way of the Spirit says, God, you said it, so I will believe it, and I will wait for you to make it happen. Show me the part you want me to play in this, Lord, but I will not force your timetable. I will not force your time to fit mine. I will wait upon the Lord, for he is faithful. He is just to accomplish everything that he said he would. That's the way of the Spirit, folks. We are sustained by God's promises, and we wait patiently for Him to work in His time, in His way, knowing that His ways are not our ways. He works supernaturally. He works miraculously. The best we've got is, Honey, bring me that beautiful slave girl. No. Wait patiently for God to work in your life. Don't try and force His hand. Follow the way of the Spirit, not the way of flesh. The way of the flesh offers us citizenship to the earthly Jerusalem only. The way of the Spirit makes us a child of the King and places our citizenship in the new heavenly Jerusalem. Folks, think about Ishmael and Isaac for a minute, what their lives must have been like. One was abandoned by his father and left to be an orphan out in the wilderness, by himself. The other was a child of the king. Don't get hung up on the ethics here of the historical account. For one thing, that was not God's doing, right? He didn't tell Abraham to go sleep with his slave girl. That was Abraham and Sarah's doing, sinful decision. It was a result of, of sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil's attempt to try and counterfeit God's promise. Folks, the Islamic religion to this day still believes that Ishmael is the son of the promise. Satan counterfeited a whole religion out of this thing. But I don't want you to think about the ethics of that decision. I want you to think about the symbolism that Paul's pointing us to. Think about the the, the nature of citizenship. Slavery versus being a child of the king. Paul says, a child... Ishmael was born of a slave and of the flesh, and because of that, he had no citizenship in his family. Well, Isaac was born of the Spirit. He was the full heir. He possessed full citizenship in Abraham's family. Think of it like this. Think about what it would mean to have citizenship in a third world country versus a a first world country. Those in the third world are slaves to their circumstances. If you're born into poverty, you have no way of escaping it. 
You're destined to live in squalor for the rest of your life. Have some children, maybe, and repeat that cycle all over again. But if you're a part of the first world, that story's a little bit different. It's the beauty of America. It's why so many people still want to come here. Because if you can get here, if you can get your citizenship here, you have hope of climbing up out of the squalor and making a life for you and your family. It doesn't matter who you are. If you can get your freedom here, you have hope and a chance to make it. This is precisely what Paul is saying. He's saying if you live your life by human effort and go the way of your, of your flesh, then you are living in a third world country. Your citizenship is slavery. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you go the way of the Spirit, your citizenship gets transferred from the third world to the first world of heaven. And you can make it, spiritually speaking. If we put it in the context of last week's message, when we talk about freedom in Christ, we're not talk about, talking about freedom from pain and suffering. We're talking about hope, eternal security, joy unending. It's always available to us in Jesus, despite and in spite of our circumstances. Paul says, if you're a child of Ishmael, you're like a third world citizen. But if you're a child of Isaac, you're a first world citizen of heaven. There is always more joy and peace and mercy available to you. And lastly, Paul says the way of the flesh results in barrenness. You look at the nations of the world. You look at what Vladimir Putin's doing right now in Russia. What do the nations of the world really have to show for all of their human effort? A bunch of blowed up buildings? Endless rat race of striving for more? The inevitable disappointment that you face once you get what you've worked so hard to get. And then you die. Now contrast that with the way of the Spirit. The way of the Spirit makes the barren fruitful and full. The way of the flesh says unless you have the right clothes or the right connections, you are too polluted and flawed to consider yourself a true child of God. You need to clean yourself up before you can claim that privilege. The way of the flesh says you need to be healthy, wealthy, and wise for God to be proud of you. The only way for you to have children, so to speak, in the allegory, is if you're fertile like Hagar. If you're weak and barren like Sarah, if you have a past, well then the best you can hope for is second class. Only the morally able, only the strong, only the people from good families, the folks with good records, only they can be spiritually fruitful, enjoy the love of God, the joy of God, and transform the lives of others. That's the way of the flesh. But the gospel and the way of the Spirit says it doesn't matter who you are or who you were up, who you were. You may be spiritually and morally outcast. You may be as marginal as a single barren woman was in these ancient days. The gospel says none of that matters. The gospel says grace is not just for the fertile Hagars, but also for the barren Sarahs. That means that in the Spirit, if Sarah can have a future, so can you. 
Church, sometimes it may look like those living the way of the flesh are winning. But winning won't make you well. The flesh, the people living by the flesh will resent and revile those of us living by the way of the Spirit. Just as Ishmael reviled and persecuted his brother Isaac, and just as those in power killed our Messiah, Jesus. But which one of those children had an inheritance coming their way? Ishmael or Isaac? Folks, choose the way of the Spirit. Don't trust in your human effort. It can't get you anywhere. Winning won't make you well. You need to be reborn, not naturally, supernaturally, by the power of the Spirit. You need to be born by the power of the Spirit into God's family. Put your faith and trust into Jesus. And once you do, you will experience freedom and joy that can only come through Him. Let me pray for you. Father God, what a text. It's deep, Lord. I pray that your Spirit would help us make sense of it. I pray, Father, that you'd help each of us latch on to something that was said here this morning, that we'd cling to it, that we'd turn it around in our brains, that you'd encourage us, that you'd convict us of sin and of righteousness, Lord, that you'd draw us ever deeper into relationship with you. Lord Jesus, there's a whole lot of bad going on in the world right now. There's a whole lot of anxiety and pressure because of it. We've got families to feed We've got projects and deadlines to meet. We've got the threat of inflation and the constant rising of prices at the gas pump and everywhere else. We've got insane dictators fighting other people and the threat of nuclear war. Lord, it's a mess down here. I pray, Father, that as the pressure gets turned up, that we, we would not resort to human effort to try and fix it. I praise you, Father, for your promise. You said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Cast your cares and your burdens upon me, and I will give you rest. Lord Jesus, may we claim that promise this morning. Let us not do what Sarah did in a moment of weakness and pressure in a moment of longing for you to make good on your promise, she turned to her human effort and she made a mess of things. Father, keep us from doing that. In this moment of pressure upon our lives, draw us back to your promises. Give us patience to wait upon you. Father, may we know the delight of waiting upon you. Thank you for the promise in the psalm that says, blessed are those who wait upon the Lord. As they wait upon me, I will give them the desires of their hearts. We desire rest, Lord Jesus. We desire peace. We desire joy that is not tied to this stinking world. We desire you. Give us those desires by the supernatural power of your Holy Spirit. We ask all of this in your most holy name, for your glory, for our joy.
Amen. I don't know what you're going through this week, church, but if you need prayer, we want to pray for you. We've got a team over here. If you're anxious and under pressure because of all the craziness in the world, come get some prayer. We would love to pray for you. For the rest of you, go in peace. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.